Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dove and Rose podcast. I'm Walter Emerson. Joan of Arc is in Orleans. And hopefully, if you've been uh, listening to the previous podcast, I've been kind of telling the story of how this phenomenon called Joan of Arc uh, ended up uh, where she is in Orleans and preparing for the, uh, the, def- the freeing of Orleans uh, militarily. And so she's been there for, um, she's been there, you know, roughly a week. And, uh, you know, Joan of Arc is, is, as we mentioned in the last podcast, she has really captured the imagination of the people. So she truly is a phenomenon. From the beginning uh, that we told, began the story with Dunois on the banks of the Loire, hearing of a, of a maid uh, that's coming across uh, to visit the king to the time that she is now here and has entered Orléans. Uh, she is, she's really brought hope. And this is something that I've been bringing out is that Joan of Arc has brought hope to the people. She is the appearance of hope appearing, as I, as I put it. And this is really her first, up until this point, she's been sort of prophesying about what she's going to do. And this is her first opportunity, really, uh, the first opportunity we'll have to see her, her do it. Now, the purpose of this podcast is not to be a, a detailed historical, uh, you know, type of, of an account. And I encourage you, if you want, you know, more of that, to visit uh, my other podcast, which is heroic-hearts.com. And I co-host that with Amy Chase. And in that podcast, we discuss in season one, we discuss the story of St. Joan of Arc through the lens of Mark Twain and his book. And we do a a, a more rigorous uh, accounting of the chronology and uh, historical details according to the, st- uh, the book written by Mark Twain. And in season two, we do St. Therese. So I think you really enjoy that. I hope you'll drop by heroic-hearts.com. Now, what I do want to, to stress, though, is I'm talking about really, uh, you know, discovering Joan phenomenologically, discovering Joan in your own life uh, as, as I have discovered Joan in my own life which has been just an unspeakable blessing to me and a grace from God uh, that literally has, has saved my life is to come to know St. Joan of Arc. And that's why I do this and share this. So uh, Joan, is, Joan is in the besieged city of Orléans. Uh, that is the last hope of the French people. It's, it's once the English take this, the English are on the verge of complete victory. And once they manage, they've had uh, Orléans besieged for you know months now. And once they take it, there'll be no stopping them. Effectively, they will have taken all of France. And so this is the, this is the, the, the last hope that they have. Now, I wanna kind of make a little bit of a correlation or an analogy because my experience with St. Joan of Arc, and when I talk so highly and so graciously and so thankful as to the blessing I've received from the Lord and Our Lady, the Blessed Virgin, as to have received through the voice of St. Therese, 
and through the hermeneutics of St. Therese. St. Therese is my interpreter of who Joan of Arc is through her, her poetry and, and plays. And uh, when I speak of this, there are certain analogies that really fit in Joan of Arc's story. One of them is the besieged city of Orléans that she's come to free, because that is exactly kind of how I felt. That was where my life was at the time uh, that I had this moment with, uh, with St. Joan of Arc, is that not long before that, I had been completely besieged myself for a long time. I'm talking 20, 25 years of being really spiritually, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually besieged terribly in, 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 a, in, in an impossible situation, in a situation in which I did everything I could, I could do to free myself of this, this terrible, terrible uh, imprisonment of my own soul and mind that I, that I was in, and nothing seemed to work. So I was truly in a position like the besieged city of Orléans, and I was just as hopeless as were the French people at that time. And so what, what did Joan do? Again, without going into a lot of the, you know, the details and, and uh, you know, the, you know the, uh, the individual pieces of all this, but what, what had happened was while she was staying there and when the army finally got back, as we discussed, uh, after being rerouted back to Blois to come up to, on the right side of the river, according to St. Joan, she was always ready to engage quickly with uh, the English because she knew what her mission was. She knew they would be victorious. She she just wanted to get it over and get it done. So when the army, <coughs> excuse me, when the army finally, you know, got back together, and she, and you know she was there. She um, there was a an outbreak at one of the uh, the the Bastilles. So the English had several Bastilles around the north side of of, of Orleans. And they had a major one blocking the south side, that that where the where the main French loyal French troops were on the south side of the wire, so that that'll play an interesting big role because the one on the south side, Le Terrell, that would really be the final battle that would free Orléans. But surrounding Orléans on each side, uh, you know, the on the north side of the of the river. They had different uh, handful of Bastilles, and one of them on the Burgundian side, on the east side, was the Bastille of St. Lou. We'd say St. Louis, but the Bastille of St. Lou. And a fight broke out, uh, unbeknownst to Joan at the time. <laughs> the French were really ready to go at that time. And long story short is that uh, kind of Joan got her things together. She realized that French blood was spilling, and, and she, she came out there to rally with them, and they defeated the English at St. Louis. So they had, they, they had their kind of their first victory, her first victory at the Bastille of St. Louis. So, so already things were starting to roll in her favor, and people were seeing you know, the, the power. And, and also, we want to notice, she was not just some inspirational figurehead. She wasn't someone that sat and inspired the troops and then waved them off, you know, with a white hanky, waved them off to victory. She was in the middle. She was in the midst. She got on her horse. She took her standard. She went into the midst of the of the battles. And you see that when you look at her life. 
you know, completely courageous, completely faith-filled, completely hope-filled, and she had no, uh, you know, no doubts or second thoughts about entering into the fray. So they freed uh, San Luis. So not long after that, there were some skirmishes, and Joan again showed her great courage, and she protected the rear guard uh, when they had to make a, a slight retreat uh, from an island uh, on the river, and she, with her uh, devoted captains, you know, covered the rear guard. So she was always in the middle, uh, showing her bravery. But they ended up taking a a second Bastille, uh, which was the Augustinian, and that was the one that was just in front of the Lay Terrell, which is on the south side. So the the Lay Terrell, that's that's really the the that's really the prize. That's that's the one that once it goes on the south side, that completely opens the south side of Orléans up, and the French can move as they as they wish, at their will, and that would effectively break the back of the of the siege. So they managed to take the Augustinian, and the only thing you know really left for them at this point was the Bastille of Lay of Lay Terrell, and in on May seventh. In 1429, you know, one of the most famous battles in the history of Europe was the Battle of Lake Terrell. So when people think of the Battle of Orléans, when when Joan freed uh, Orléans, they they oftentimes this is really the the battle they're thinking of. It it really occurred over a number of days and over several skirmishes. It wasn't just one thing. But the the famous uh, Battle of Lake Terrell on on May 7th, that's really what people think of. That was the battle where uh, the French forces were, uh, they were uh, struggling. In fact, they, they, they were sort of a little bit demoralized. They hadn't really achieved their aim by late in the afternoon. And, uh, you know, uh, Dunois, the Bastard of Orléans, and her other captains like Lahire, Lahir, uh, you know, they were really kind of talking her into, we, why don't we just kind of pull back and rest and try this again tomorrow? And she would have none of that. And so she went off uh, to pray. She, she went off by herself to pray for about 15 minutes. And she came back, and they reengaged at, the, at the, sort of the last-ditch effort on that day late in the afternoon, and they overwhelmed the English. Uh, they, they either took as prisoner or killed all the people, all the English that were there. Uh, the English uh, the commander of that Bastille, Glasdale, uh, drowned. Uh, he was armed head to toe in armor, and uh, he was, uh, you know, he was driven into the Loire, and he drowned in the Loire. So it was a ferocious battle. Joan was in the middle of it. She stated uh, later on in her testimony that she, in fact, was the first one to lay the ladder of uh, the, the the ladder, the scaling ladder, to climb the wall of the Bastille. She was the first one to lay the ladder there uh, to climb up. So she, she had no issue. She was right out front, oftentimes like that, the first one, you know, to just start climbing uh, the ladder. So there was nothing shy, nothing merely um, symbolic about her, le- about her leadership. And so in, in this great victory, they were able to march through the Le Terrell into Orleans, and this was the moment. This was the moment of freedom for Orleans. And the next day on May 8th, 
the and, and this is the French to this day celebrate May eighth in, in Orleans. There's a huge celebration that's gone on from the very time when Joan of Arc was alive. <laughs> they began celebrating this uh, and still still do today. The May eighth celebration. It was so the battle was on May seventh of Le Terrell, but on May eighth the English uh, pulled out all their forces from the Bastilles and they arrayed them into a uh, into a uh, you know a military um, you know a, arrangement out in an open field and they you know looked as if they were probably going to try to attack and Joan took her troops the French troops and she met them eye to eye out on the battlefield and they didn't fight they sat there and stared at each other for about an hour and her troops wanted to fight the french were they were on they were they were leading they the momentum was in their way and they wanted to charge and it was sunday and joan would have none of that uh, on sunday she basically she stared them down and the english with all their forces that they had evacuated all the bastilles that were besieging the city they turned around and they left to go to. So the city of Orléans was completely freed. So she stared them down in the open battlefield. So this is quite a, quite a you know, quite a story. And I, again, I, I relate this in my own experience with Joan that led me to start writing and experiencing St. Joan. This is something that I equate I, I relate to analogously in my own life because this is exactly what I feel. Uh, and there, there's a story around it. I haven't really, really told it, but you know, there's a story around the fact that it, in fact, it was on July 17 that uh, that I was uh, freed. And through, I know, the intercession and the help and by the will of God through the graces that he would give me through St. Joan of Arc. And what we're going to see is going forward from May to July 17. July, July 17 is the day that she'll end up crowning King Charles. And so it was her day of great victory on July 17. And it was on a, a July 17 that the chains, uh, sort of the chains of, Hell fell from me by the grace and intercession and the healing of St. Joan of Arc. So I really relate very much to this notion of a city besieged and being freed by St. Joan of Arc. So this was quite momentous. Now messengers are running back and forth. This erupts into quite the... Uh, quite the the scene across not just France, but all of Europe, everyone around Europe, from the Holy Roman Empire to down into Italy and um, everywhere, the word was out about this maiden who had brought about these miraculous victories. So she's really creating quite a stir. Now, again, I'm using uh, Régine Pernoud's book, uh, Joan of Arc, Her Story, and as, as Régine Pernoud uh, discusses, there were many, many uh, embellishments. So you know how these things go. So people all over start telling these stories about, and, and they get embellished. I mean, she was, she was, quite, she was a, quite 
the interest in Italy because they did a lot of, of trading uh, in, in, you know, in Italy, and they had a lot of merchants who were no different than today, arms traders, who were very interested in the state of wars uh, so they could trade their arms. And, and so there was, there was just a lot of interest in the Italian peninsula. Um, her exploits had caught the attention of the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. I mean, this was, this was big news going all over. And so naturally, these stories start to, you know, grow. Mythologies start to be, you know, embellished about her. There, you know, there was a French nobleman who, you know, wrote basically how on her birthday in, in January 6th on Epiphany in uh, 1412 and how the birds were singing, announcing her birth and others sort of applied a a mystical interpretation that when she was in the fields as a child, the birds would come and nestle in her bosom to be fed, you know, so, um, and the, the stories of her victory at Orléans would get that how she, she had predicted that, uh, the, you know, Glasdale, the captain of the Bastille would, would, uh, you know, would die, and he would die a bloodless death and things. And she had many prophetic sayings, and they all came true. But some of these were somewhat embellished. And so she, that's what makes, I think, so interesting. She, just in herself, and through what heaven was doing through her, she's bigger than life. But then everyone, of course, made her bigger than bigger than life. <laughs> so on her own, uh, without any embellishment, she is stunning. She is bigger than life. But of course, you know the way that we all are. You know the way that people go. And next thing you know, there were lots of enhanced stories and, and things like that. And, and so, you know... I kind of put myself in the position. I've been talking a lot through this podcast and all the seasons I've been doing about how a real breakthrough for me in my uh, my devotion to St. Joan of Arc, my sense of relationship, my sense of friendship, of heavenly friendship with St. Joan of Arc, how it was aided by taking a phenomenological approach. And, and this being brought to me by St. Edith Stein, St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross, uh, as, as you know from the previous episodes. And as I took on uh, you know, some of the thoughts of St. Edith Stein, I began then looking into her philosophical background, which led me into her phenomenology that she, that she uh, reconciled with uh, the, you know, the scholasticism of St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and so I had been taking this phenomenological approach, which I've been trying to explain uh, through this. And this is, this is an area where I think now we can see the reason why this, this is so important. It, it's very difficult for us to know, just like in this historical case, when we go and look at St. Joan of Arc and we hear all these stories and the, tr the true stories are incredible and miraculous. But then there are also other stories and different um, kind of genres of stories and then 
poetry written about her and everything like that. And so in order to, in phenomenology, in order to understand what we want to do is try to get to the core, is to kind of get, you know, beyond just the superficial appearances uh, and, and to kind of get not necessarily just at the actual historical facts. That's not really what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is getting to the real core and essence of who who is Joan of Arc? You know, who who was she historically? Who is she now, uh, in in heaven? And so we have to kind of go through this process, this phenomenological process of, of 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 you know, really trying to engage, uh, and and break through what is what is kind of superficial. What is truly uh, in 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 the essence? Much the way that historically, much the way that historically, we have to look at what are true historical events versus versus embellishments. And so, the, the as you know, the way that uh, that this worked for me was to begin writing descriptively about Saint Joan of Arc's impact in my life, and I had to have a starting point. You know that was the big question with uh, Saint Joan of Arc was where do you, where do you start because amidst all these stories you know the the true ones are incredible there's a lot of other stories where where do you begin how do you peel this all back and that was when I I chose or I, I say I chose I don't think that's really the right way to say it I think you know Saint Therese and Saint Joan chose me because I it was through the reading of Saint Therese's poetry and plays that. Just this moment happened where I just kind of felt essentially on the battlefield. You know, I just had this sort of sense, like at the battlefield of at the at the uh, uh, at the you know battle of Les Tourelles, uh, that that you know I was kind of you know had this almost like touched on that moment with Saint Joan of Arc. Uh, as it related to my own life, if if that makes sense, and so uh, that was really my starting point. I said, "Well, th- this is if anyone is the authentic interpreter of the essence of Saint Joan of Arc." Now there are a lot of historic. There, are, Saint Therese is not the historian for Saint Joan of Arc. She knew Saint Joan's history. Well, there are tremendous, you know, historians that can tell you everything. And 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 reading the book by Regine Pernoud, she she was one of them. But what I'm talking about is who is St. Joan really? Like we know her history, but who is she really? And, and I, I feel like that's what St. Therese in her poetry and plays, that she truly knew St. Joan of Arc. Uh, she had a spiritual sense of who St. Joan of Arc was. St. Joan was like a sister to her. And I believe they're sisters in heaven. And I believe they're paired as sisters in heaven. There are, you know... People often talk about certain saints are kind of paired, uh, you know, in, in heaven. And I do believe, and that's why I started writing about the dove and the rose, you know, the two hearts, the combined hearts of St. Joan and St. Therese, because I really see them as sisters in heaven. And so who better to go to than Joan's heavenly sister <laughs> to learn about her and to be able to read what she, what she St. Therese, wrote about St. Joan interplays and poetry. So that was my starting point. And so using that as my starting point, I then began writing 
uh, descriptively and starting with basically the impact. And what I started doing was correlating, as I studied the life of St. Joan of Arc, I started correlating the events of St. Joan's life with the impact that I felt St. Joan was making on my own life. And I began drawing correlations to that. And next thing I know, I began developing more than just a historical understanding of St. Joan, but a, a, a spiritual, phenomenological, experiential understanding of St. Joan, which is truly subjective. It is my own subjective uh, experience, but it's an experience of the objective transcendent reality of St. Joan as, a, as an incredible saint and, um, uh, you know, helpful uh, friend and warrior for our Lord Jesus Christ and Our Lady, the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so that's something that, you know, I encourage all of you, I encourage my listeners to start journaling if you're interested in St. Joan of Arc is study her historically, but move beyond just the historical and start uh, writing your own journals about St. Joan's impact in your life and correlating it to events in her life and allowing the Holy Spirit through the heart of the Blessed Virgin and with St. Therese uh, with her motherly and and sisterly care, to you know, kind of start putting those those meaningful correlations together. What I've been calling throughout the podcast, the maps of meaning. You know that we're what we're trying to do is get an empathic understanding of Saint Joan of Arc's map of meaning, and that, that's that's what I mean. As I read her story, I didn't just want to learn the history. I, I wanted to kind of understand. What what was her when what was her map of meaning when she looked out in the world? What were those points of meaning, you know, that were surrounded by a sea of irrelevances or a forest of irrelevances? And I can't know that because I'm not her. But I mean, you know, my goal was to try to search that out and see if I could sort of come to an empathic. And that was another help I got from St. Edith Stein because St. Edith Stein wrote a lot about empathy uh, in her studies on phenomenology. So I encourage you to, to, to do that. So we're, we're up through, you know, Joan has attained victory at Orléans, and she, she's now, you know, going to be heading down to uh, Loche, uh, which is kind of, you know, the King Charles the Dauphin had been in... in uh, in Chinon, which is kind of southwest, and so now he's kind of moved over to the southeast side of, of Orléans, and she's going to go down. And the big thing now is that Joan is going to try to convince the king and his captains that they all want to go and follow up on this victory by charging into Normandy to really rout the, the English. And, and Joan is adamant that this is not the right path. The path now is, is not what might seem to make sense on the surface militarily, but it is to take Charles to Reims through enemy Burgundian territory to crown him the king of France. And she claims that once he is crowned, 
that the power of his enemies over him will diminish. So she, again, clearly sees not a superstitious relationship between the crown of of France and Charles, but a truly metaphysical, spiritual uh, association of the crown of France with Charles. And so, you know, this this is what I mean, that I, I encourage listeners to, you know, absorb what you sense Joan of Arc's impact is in your life and how you, what you're, what you kind of, what's meaningful in that relationship with St. Joan of Arc. And then look at her history and start, you know, trying to, you know, correlate your map of meaning with what her map of meaning uh, might be. And, and let her, that's what I call letting her guide you, letting her lead you along the trail of the dogmatic creed with St. Therese at your side as your heavenly sister. And all of this um, in accord with uh, Our Lady, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and and that we might be the best Catholics we can be and be the best followers of Jesus Christ in his Catholic Church that we can be. And, you know, to pay attention when he gives us these incredible friends from heaven to help us. So there's, you know, there's still more to say, but we've achieved victory at Orléans, and we are now getting ready to take Charles to Reims um, against the, you know, the desires of her military commanders and to crown Charles the King of France. And so we'll talk about that next time. Hope you enjoyed that. I look forward to chatting with you next time. Thanks. God bless. Bye-bye.